Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. This is Doug Clinton. Today I'm joined by Corey Inman, a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University's Department of Neurosurgery. Corey has conducted research about emotional modulation and memory enhancement using stimulation techniques in the brain. We talk about the connection between emotion and memory, different ways to think about and treat depression, and the ethical implications of using these approaches more broadly. And with that, I bring you Corey Inman. All right, Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, you know, we always like to start and ask, how did you become interested in the field of neuroscience? I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Of course, there's a long story that goes with that. But I'd always been interested in psychology. I actually started off as a music education major, but it was about 50-50 between music education and psychology. In college, I started off with that and then moved back to Atlanta to pursue psychology after I realized I didn't like practicing that much. So I started doing that. And then I I realized in order to really teach at the level that I wanted to, I would have to get a PhD. And so I joined a lab and was very interested in the newer technologies of functional MRI and being able to read what the brain was doing as people, you know, just normal everyday people were performing various types of tasks from remembering days in their life to thinking about sort of emotional experiences or seeing emotional scenes. And I had a really fortunate opportunity to work in a lab that did that during my undergraduate degree. Then I kept pursuing it from there. But really what's gotten me interested and really got me hooked into neuroscience is trying to understand the neural mechanisms that underline memory encoding and memory retrieval, and then also how certain memories get stuck into our memory through emotion and how emotion can make those memories stick even better than you know your normal everyday experiences. The two really, really interesting fields that there's obviously a lot of connection to, and, and maybe for the purposes of our conversation, I'll separate them a little bit into the sort of idea of emotion modulation and then memory broadly or memory enhancement. But maybe starting with that emotion modulation side, a two-part question. First, what are some of the areas where you're doing research there? What are you looking into? And then maybe in layman's terms, what are the mechanisms within neuroscience that we can use to modulate emotions? How does it work? Really, we're coming at it from the perspective of, you know, we really want to understand just the basics of how the human brain works. We can learn a lot from how various types of animals respond to stimulation or provocation of their system through scary means, like trying to drop a rat into a bowl and then seeing them try to escape and things like that. But, you know, really the best model for a human, and that's really anybody that works on animals, that's what they're trying to help. The best model for a human is a human. And so that's the kind of perspective that we take on this. And from that, I work with two neurosurgeons here at Emory, and we're interested in trying to understand the neural basis of your emotional responses and how you regulate those responses, because there's lots of disorders that who have problems with that. So post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, depression. And I kind of got into, you know, doing deep brain stimulation of this type 
to try to understand emotional memory enhancement or emotional modulation through working with Helen Mayberg on deep brain stimulation for depression during graduate school. And there I was my first sort of experience seeing something that's about as close as I can ever explain to a miracle where these patients that are completely depressed, they've been depressed for decades in, in many cases, they've gone through every type of treatment and nothing has worked. I also have a parent who had a mood disorder. And so I, it was very real for me. It brought back lots of memories for me. And it helped me understand that, you know, if we can really understand these circuits through stimulating the human brain and asking people what they feel or also measuring their changes in their heart rate and the amount of sweat on their palms and these, you know, really standard psychological measures of emotion that we could potentially get a handle on how we might be able to regulate those systems that are not working properly in PTSD or in depression, anxiety, and so forth. And so what we're interested in in trying to figure out is when you stimulate a particular part of the circuit and then you stimulate another part of the circuit, what are the differential contributions of those areas to the emotional response? And one of the interesting things that we've seen is that actually it's fairly hard to get a subjective emotional response when you stimulate the brain. Often the patient doesn't actually report anything, which has been a bit surprising and not necessarily what I think a lot of people that study emotion would have thought. And so we're still trying to unpack what's happening. I did my graduate work trying to understand all of this with, from the perspective of sort of correlation rather than causation by looking at how the brain in normal everyday, mostly undergraduates, responds to emotional stimuli, whether that's looking at eye tracking and seeing how the emotional stimuli draws your attention differently than neutral stimuli, or how emotional stimuli in an fMRI scanner provoke the amygdala in this large circuit throughout the brain to respond in a different way than neutral stimuli. I'm really surprised to hear the finding that you mentioned there about subjective emotional response as you stimulate the brain. And I'm curious, just sort of your brief hypothesis there, is it just that even though we stimulate where we know there's sort of neural activity associated with a given emotion, if there's not an associated sort of physiological response, you know, the sweating of the palms or the increased heart rate or whatever it is, is it that lack of combination that people then sort of dissociate that subjective response? So in one of our papers, what we found was essentially that we did stimulation of the amygdala in eight different patients. And when we stimulated the brain in the first seven of those patients, we didn't get any sort of emotional response, like subjective emotional response. But at the same time, we actually were getting a change in the amount of sweat on their palms that was dose dependent. It depended on how much electricity we were putting into their amygdala. But they still would ask us, are you actually doing anything? And we would compare that to actually doing sham stimulations where we would pretend to turn it on, but actually wouldn't turn it on. So we would say stim on um, or condition one on, but we wouldn't actually turn it on. And so from that, we can sort of start to dissociate the actual response from their sort of expectations and, and their response to us telling them that we're doing brain stimulation. And then in one of the patients, and only one of the patients out of this eight, which is other studies have found this sort of 10% level of subjective response, basically that 
only about 10% of the patients that you stimulate have shown this sort of subjective response. We think it actually really has to do with the exact circuit that you're in because every part of the brain is in a slightly different network because the brain is a network of networks. And when you're stimulating a very, very specific area, that's a slightly different network, you know, and you can move one millimeter away or two millimeters away and get a completely different response. And so what we think in that one patient that did have the subjective fear response to amygdala stimulation, which is what you would expect based off of all the animal work and decades of work, we think that that actually has to do with the exact circuit that we were in. It's a circuit that actually got more into the areas that would have provoked the sort of conscious subjective response. It basically would have made it rise above the 80% of your cognition that is kind of running under the hood. We've also seen that type of thing in deep brain stimulation for depression, where you can move up one contact, which is one millimeter away, and you get a very different response than the spot that actually provokes this sort of acute antidepressant effect. I have, from my experience, come around to thinking that the precision of exactly where you're stimulating really, really matters when it comes to emotional modulation. And I actually think that that's the case for lots of different types of modulation of cognition from memory to emotion to motor types of responses. I think all of those things, the precision of exactly where you're stimulating matters more than we know at this point. That's a great insight. I think it leads a little bit, I think, into the next question I wanted to ask, which is, as we think about some of these neuroscience-related potential treatments for things like depression, I think there's this assumption that they are just in every way better than pharmaceutical treatments that we might use right now. And there's probably a question around precision for both of those in different ways. But I'm curious, from your perspective, how do you think about the pros and cons of using DBS, for example, to treat something like depression instead of pharmaceutical treatment? The way that I think about it is very much informed by how one of my mentors, Helen Mayberg, has thought about this. And one thing is, is that there are likely more than one type of depression, in particular, one type of biological depression. There's lots of different causes that could lead to a depressed state. And essentially, the approach that she's taken with this is that there are different types of treatments are more appropriate for different types of patients. So it's not necessarily that you would do one instead of the other, but rather that therapy and talking with somebody might be more appropriate for somebody than medication. And medication might be more appropriate for somebody than therapy. And in the case that neither of those types of things work, then perhaps it's actually about that you really need to get into directly into the circuit and use deep brain stimulation. You know, I think at least right now, the ethical stance is fairly appropriate that deep brain stimulation should be the sort of last resort because of the potential for complications in any type of brain surgery. But the complications in deep brain stimulation surgeries is fairly minimal. And so I could imagine a time where deep brain stimulation, once we understand the different types of depression and the underpinnings of those types of depression, that it might be the first option for some types of patients if we can understand the sort of constellation of issues biologically and sociologically that those patients are going through. You know, there's lots of relationship dynamic things that can cause depression that, you know, might be solved with therapy that you might not need 
medication at all or anything else. So the approach they've tried to take is using functional MRI and PET imaging to essentially try to classify patients into patients that would better respond to medication versus patients that would better respond to talk therapy. And then in the case that neither of those categories, perhaps deep brain stimulation might be an option down the road. It's a good point. There's a sort of hierarchy of solutions that, you know, maybe become more extreme or more specialized depending on the type of depression. And within that hierarchy, as you think about DBS as a solution, you mentioned the surgical option. Have you done any research or do you have any thoughts on non-invasive stimulation mechanisms? Like I've seen some stuff on using vagus nerve stimulation, even non-invasive uh, vagus nerve stim to maybe treat depression as well. Yeah, I will say that I'm not as directly familiar with those approaches. I haven't had direct experience with those, but I, I have read some of the work on that. And, you know, I think that there is definitely potential for that. It's a lot harder to understand exactly what's happening in those cases, because often you're not really recording directly from the circuits that you're evoking. And that's actually also the case when you're doing deep brain stimulation. And it's also usually a much more general effect. But I do think there has been a lot of promise and many of my friends who are psychiatrists, they're very interested in these non-invasive approaches because really it kind of puts them on the same treatment course in terms of options as talk therapy and medication and the sort of standard approaches. And so I think that TMS or TDCS, various ways of doing non-invasive and even ketamine, other types of novel drugs are being tried. These all show a lot of promise and there's not going to be just one solution that fits everybody. So I think the better we can do sort of precision medicine as the National Institutes of Health have asked everybody to pursue, I think the better we'll be able to treat patients on an individual basis and do the sort of personalized medicine thing. I haven't heard the ketamine thing. I didn't realize that that was being experimented with. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's a clinic here at Emory that does ketamine. And so basically the patient comes in and they're monitored for a period of time after they have their treatment because of the effects of ketamine. But it actually has, I think, recently received some type of approval from the FDA as a specific treatment. I'm not as familiar with that, but I know a colleague who runs a center here that does that as an option for depression treatment. It seems like sort of psychedelics more broadly are, are having this moment of interest in the scientific community about, you know, how can they be used to treat, as you said, depression or anxiety, things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what the research kind of ends up showing on those. Absolutely. I think the stigma behind that is slowly fading away and that there is an option, it's becoming an option to at least un try to understand whether they can have these helpful effects for some patients under medical supervision. I think that's the, the biggest thing is that you want to have somebody there to help you through that experience and that can make it a, a positive experience in relation to your issues. Let me shift gears to the other side of your work, more around memory enhancement and improvement. And can you tell us maybe just a little bit about how 
you're approaching memory enhancement via neurology and just sort of how those mechanisms work. Yeah. So the emotion and memory stuff is actually, for me, fairly related. So one thing about emotion is that it helps our memories stick. If I give you a random set of words and say, bring up some personal memory from each of those words, often those memories are going to be some sort of emotional experience that you've had in your in your life. So if I give you the word summer, you're likely not going to come up with some really bland, boring memory. You're going to come up with some sort of story of an experience that you had during summer that was emotionally different and novel from the other types of experiences that you've had. And so there's a long history of emotion and memory interacting and and us trying to understand the neural mechanisms that underlie that process. And it's basically thought that emotion sort of helps us tag our experiences and tells the memory centers of the brain, the hippocampus, to bind that information into a coherent memory so that it will stick with us and then make sure that that memory gets consolidated and stored for long periods of time. This is one of the most incredible things that we understand in neuroscience fairly well. And that is that when you provoke the amygdala with adrenaline or with different types of hormones that sort of cause our emotional experiences or that are caused by our emotional experiences, that that enhances the stickiness or the consolidation of that memory over time. So this work was first done in the 1960s by one of the luminaries in our field, Jim McGaw at UC Irvine. And what they did was they would pharmacologically stimulate the amygdala with norepinephrine, which is the brain version of epinephrine that gets circulated throughout your body when you have an emotional experience or stressful experience or even a really positive experience. And so what they found was that when you injected this after a rat had a series of experiences, that their likelihood to remember those types of experiences later on under lots of different conditions was much greater. And so, you know, a lot of our emotion work with amygdala stimulation mainly came from just testing the safety of doing amygdala stimulation in humans, making sure that it was safe before we went on to do this emotional memory enhancement or amygdala stimulation related memory enhancement experiment. And so what we did after based on a series of studies that were done here at Emory by my colleague Joe Manns and David Bass, they had shown in rats that instead of doing pharmacological activation of the amygdala with norepinephrine, you could actually do direct electrical stimulation to the amygdala in rats. And they would forget less of the items that they experienced the day before on the next day. So basically, you know, rats' ability to remember things over long, long periods of time is not great. And so, you know, if you don't stimulate their brain, they're probably going to forget a lot of the things that they saw the day before. But for the objects, the specific objects that they're running around this track and sniffing and exploring, their memory was just as good the next day as it was the day before. So essentially, when we say this amygdala-mediated memory enhancement, what we mean is that you forget less of the stuff the next day. It's not like you remember stuff that you didn't remember the day before, you just don't forget it after you have demonstrated that it was encoded. And so what we did is we tried to replicate that exact experiment. In the rat study, the rats were running around on this circular track and they would get three different objects. One would be stimulated, another object wouldn't be stimulated, and then another object would be this novel stimulus that we didn't really do anything with. And a key part of this is 
they would stimulate right after the rat had run away from the object. And so that was to control for any types of effects of stimulating the amygdala that stimulating the amygdala could have on attention. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't just making them attend to the object better, but actually that we were provoking a change in the immediate period right after they experienced it to try to provoke better memory for it. And so we tried to do that exact experiment. We had patients in the hospital that have epilepsy. So these patients are really bad epilepsy that medication hasn't cured. So they're in the hospital to try to figure out where their seizures are coming from with the potential that a surgeon could potentially remove a specific part of the brain that is causing their seizures. And so we have an opportunity to, in some cases, record directly from the hippocampus and the amygdala because these areas tend to be areas that cause epilepsy. And so we have electrodes in the amygdala and we stimulate those electrodes in this exact same way that my colleagues had done in the rats right after they see an object on the screen just for one second. And what we can show is that when you do the exact same stimulation stuff that they did in the rats and you do it in humans is that we can enhance memory over a long-term delay over a 24-hour period, which is the longest that anybody in human memory enhancement has shown that you can show a memory enhancement is that a full day later, their memory is better than it would have been if you didn't stimulate. That's the sort of long-winded approach to how we've tried to figure this stuff out. The key is that we've really tried to be informed by the prior animal studies because they can really get at the mechanism while we can actually test the translatability of those types of treatments in humans. It's really fascinating how the emotion component and the memory component work so closely together. And it leads me to wonder, as we continue to do research here and we get better at these processes and maybe even find ways to introduce them into more broadly adopted clinical applications or maybe even consumer applications, how do you think about a world where we have this power over emotional context and also enhancement of memory? Like, how do you think about the pros and cons or maybe the ethics of that long-term improvement for humanity? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a tightrope to walk. I personally come at it from the perspective of we're trying to help people that have had some sort of functional loss in their memory or some lack of control over their emotional experience that can't be cured with other types of treatments. You know, for me, I'm not particularly interested in doing this for everybody because I actually don't think that it would be a beneficial thing for everybody. I think it can be fairly dangerous to be able to change your emotional state uh, through some sort of direct means by hitting your Apple Watch and having it stimulate your brain. You know, but we do have to think a lot about the ethical constraints of this. And we have to think about what we as a society are comfortable with and what we feel like will be beneficial in the long run. There's lots of treatments that medicine has provided that in the wrong contexts and under the wrong uses can really devastate people's lives. And so that's certainly not what we're working for. What we're working for is to help people that have functional deficits due to some type of neurological disorder that we feel like we can help them get back to at least closer to normal function. So for instance, for memory enhancement, you know, there are lots of patients in, that have traumatic brain injury, that have epilepsy, potentially even Alzheimer's disease one day, other types of memory disorders 
where patients lose the ability to make new memories of their life. And in particular, you know, they're really devastating for them is that they can't remember the good times. They can't remember the experiences in their life that we all remember and that make our lives a rich experience and that help form our sense of self and who we are. Um, and they stop being able to lo- remember those type of memories. That's really devastating. And so what I hope that we can do is be able to help people remember the rich positive autobiographical experiences that they want to remember, where their brain is not allowing them to due to some type of neurological disorder that has either happened to them through brain injury or some sort of other cause. I don't necessarily see myself at least working towards this being something that's available for everybody, everyone that's healthy and not, but particularly the patients that need some help. You know, even if it's a small amount of help, if it's 10, 15% enhancement, I think that could go a long way. It's, I think, you know, tightrope is, is a great way to put kind of the long-term element of it. And I think that short-term focus on helping those sort of very specific populations with a need is a great place to focus. So, Corey, it brings me to our last question we like to ask everybody on the show, which is what book or books would you recommend we read to learn more about just neuroscience in general? Do you have a favorite book for us? Well, I, I always go back to the fundamentals. Eric Kandel's Foundations of Neuroscience book. It's had many versions and been updated a lot. And that's a great place to kind of get the fundamentals, of course. I would also say that, you know, in terms of fiction, there's some great books. Uh, there's one called Brain on Fire that I really enjoyed reading. It was very provocative and helped me sort of think through what happens when your brain isn't working properly. Great recommendation. Well, Corey, that's all we had for you. Thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and I will plug the podcast myself. I'm a a longtime listener and have really enjoyed the conversations that you've had. And as a neuroscientist, getting to hear the perspective of somebody that's working from the business side and the venture side, it's been really informative to hear the types of questions and conversations that you've had for various guests. So thank you for the opportunity. It's awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for joining. 